Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed part one of our conversation. Let's kick off part two. Everybody needs someone sweeping up behind them, and it sounds like you especially do. Who's, who's doing that sweeping up behind you? Who's picking up the collateral damage in uh, in Brompton? So I, we 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 all should recognise in us that we we are we have strengths and weaknesses, and m- most of us, our strength is our weakness. So my enthusiasm to be driven optimistic and everything else and get things done and and sort of mad ideas is is a weakness because as you rightly say my ability to sort of finish things to the nth degree and follow up is poor um and when you're building your team you need to recognize that the last thing you want in your team is a bunch of identikit people who are all the same because you are sure to fail and i have a there are five of us in the in the senior management team at Brompton. Uh, Will, who looks after our design, I recruited him as a graduate. He's now on the board. Um, I've got Lorne, who's been he looks he looks after our finances, but also incredibly looks after all of our retail stores. Um, and then Steve in our commercial. Paul looks after the operations. I mean, we 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 have longevity in in, in us as a team. Um, there is no you know, hallow ground. They know I'm completely useless in most of what I do. Um, and therefore, we work together to support each other to try and do our best. And none of us are anything like perfect. But as a team, we're pretty effective. That completely resonates. I'm, I'm part of a two-person management team described by my, by my colleague, Ed, that I do the colouring, uh, I do the sketching, he does the colouring in. And that is absolutely accurate in how it works. And we're, we're both happy with those roles. So uh, long may it continue. Um, so you're throwing in the hand grenades. I guess I guess the market and life and the real world is also throwing in hand grenades. What 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 hand grenades have you got that are that are kicking out innovations for Brompton? What's the next big innovation for the for the product? So, I mean, we we feel like we're moving at a hundred miles an hour, but the consumer doesn't see it quite that way because it takes time to develop something and. Um, the consumer doesn't know everything that we're doing. But as I said a bit earlier, we we spent nearly seven years developing an electric drive system. And it is, it's off the flipping chart in terms of what we're trying to achieve. And it's, I came on, on mine today, I flipping love it. But we've spent 35 years being a metal basher. And we now have become a software electronics company. That's a massive change to how we operate and how we think and the knowledge that we've had to bring into the company to be able to do that. So we launched that bike two years ago and we are still in massive incoming like gushing insight from we've now got 6,000 people across many countries in Europe whizzing around on it and you just you know the incoming knowledge that is allowing us to then learn more optimize improve develop that system is is a huge piece of work for us at the moment the other one is permanently trying to use innovation material science optimization of design to take weight out because uniquely on the Brompton you have to carry it um, even though people spend billions of pounds on making their, their road bikes lighter, they forget they then actually put their bottom on the saddle and pedal off into the sunset. So, you know, actually for us, it's the, when you're carrying it and your bum's not on it that, that, that really matters. So um, there is some 
you know, there's just so much stuff going on, and I'm not very good at keeping secrets, but some of the stuff that's coming down the track is flipping awesome. Um, and then, you know, there's a whole load of other stuff that's in our brain that we just need to start doing because it's so obvious. Um, we've got to make our bikes intelligent. I mean, you know, and and, and that's a no-brainer, and, and Internet of Things, and the consumer wants to engage and, and without producing more naff stuff that you're told you need but you don't really want. Um, within that, there is some things that really are valuable and, and would be really useful for the consumer that the technology exists. We just got to get on and implement it into our bike. But that, you know, it does all take time. And like, and like any innovator, you've, you've had some engineering challenges, some product recalls. What's that given you in terms of insight into where to go next with, with the product? Well, yes. I mean, in one particular case, as an example of something where technology, you know, it's, it's there. You, you can do it. We haven't done it yet. But we, about three years ago, we had a recall on a part on our bike. And that was a really tough decision for me because it, it was one of the few times when I had to take the decision. Um, and it was where we were, it was a particular part, we never had a failure. We've had the same supplier for probably 30 years. Never. The thing's flipping bomb-proof. And we were getting these failures. And I mean, so few that initially you just think it's a statistic blip. You just put it down to, you know, you will occasionally in, in sort of, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of bikes, occasionally you just get an anomaly. But then there were just like one or two more. And starting, this is funny. So then we started testing, testing, testing. We changed the part on the bike that we were making and testing, testing. Nothing wrong with it. It was fine. Passed all the tests. It just must be an anomaly. And then I was on holiday. And in fact, I was on a pedalo with my daughters in Ibiza. And I got another flipping failure. I thought, what the hell is going on here? And there was no evidence. Everything, all the engineering said, there's nothing wrong, but we had another one, and I just thought, right, that's it. Got to, we just got to, just got to recall them, which is a massive, scary decision, particularly when we didn't know what was wrong with it and there was no evidence. But we took that decision and um, we sort of recalled four hundred sixty thousand bikes. Cost us a lot of money, but if anything, it reinforced who we are and what we stand for. We are not a company that sells a product and then moves on to the next customer. We, th when we sell a product, that's the beginning of the relationship with our customer through thick and thin. And if we feel there's something that we're worried about, we'll act on it. As it happened, some weeks later, we finally established what the issue was, and it was to do with the heat treatment of, a, of an axle. Um, but it was very close to the standard, so that's why we didn't pick it up. But, you know, in that case, actually, I recalled um, hundreds of thousands of bikes where actually the risk to the consumer was virtually zero because the person who was at risk was the sort of 95 kilo, less than 30 years of age, hardcore rider doing 10 miles every day to work. That's who might have broken this part. But you don't know which of your customers is that person. So you therefore have to just basically recall every single bike. Now, if we had a clever bit of technology inside of our bike that could tell us what loads it had seen through its lifestyle, I could have reduced that cost of recall from 460,000 to maybe less than 10. How cool is that? And I could tell the customer when they need to change this part because I know exactly what it's done rather than some theoretical estimate. So this, and that's just an example of many. There's so much opportunity to, to 
with technology and, and what's going on in the world to, to make this thing even better. And presumably that technology is out there, and, and part of your part of your role is to find the, the partnerships and collaborations that unlock those opportunities. Yeah, absolutely, and it's it's riddled. I mean, the world, the opportunity is just there. You know, opportunity isn't the problem; it's delivering. It's it's crystallizing it, getting clear focus, and making it to a point where it's actually going to impact the life of the, the customer. And um, you know, and, and and you've got to be so careful not to just rush around in the sweet shop just grabbing everything and, and, and achieving nothing and I'm you know that's one of my weaknesses I get terribly overexcited about everything and my team are forever telling me we'll just forget it we can't do that just gonna have to just leave it and I'm like oh my god I can't bear it but they're right because we just can't do everything we we have limited resource and we've got to you know we've got to make sure that we make a profit so we'll hear in 10 years time and that that that, that we have the funds to invest in the next plan and not every plan comes off I want to come back to that idea that we were talking about earlier around um, the central purpose being about making the the city experience uh, a positive one, improving that city experience. And um, I'm fascinated also by the idea that that's come from someone who grew up in Yorkshire and is a self-confessed non-urbanite. So... um, how how important in that conversation is is government? And it, I mean, you you have a relationship with with government and, and and have a conversation with government. How important is government in making that a reality? Um, I think a little bit, but remember, we're in forty six countries around the world. So if if that really was important, my job would be basically hobnobbing with government and trying to, you know, second guess government. The other problem with government is they keep changing, you know, so you spend ages getting to know somebody and thinking you're getting somewhere in this complete web of government. And then they're going, they've gone. And some other person rolls in and you're, oh my God, here we go again. So actually, don't get me wrong, government has a huge part to play, but I don't see that as our role anywhere in our priorities to influence government because we'd just be, you know, pissing money up the wall, quite frankly. What we need to do is make products that impact people's lives. What we need to do is use our customers and, and the experience and the influence that we've had on them to, for them to that to influence their job. We have many, many corporates that are buying our bikes and putting them into their companies to encourage their staff to cycle. We, we have a bike hire scheme now where we're working with developers and we're integrating bike hire, not, not just pool bikes, actual sophisticated bike hire into the infrastructure of a building. Then as part of their 106, they're putting in cycle lanes, which we're helping them with to get to the, the, the the, the sort of um, transport nodes. So, and that that is having a faster and more concrete impact on society than 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 the government side. I think on a macro scale, anybody in any government anywhere around the world can see if we don't change the way we live in our cities, we're going to have an incoming health bill so flipping massive, we are not going to be able to afford it. So we have to change. And and, and it's coming at slightly different levels. But whereas 15 years ago, I was some weirdo on a bike with small wheels, people actually genuinely get this challenge of, of how we look after the society we've created in cities. So I think that's going to come but, but I don't think that I am going to have the time or the capacity to influence it. I'm just going to let the sort of society as a whole do that. 
back to knowing where the boundaries are. So we're sat here in, in central London today. Uh, you cannot get in a cab without having a conversation with a cabbie about cycle lanes. What are what are the what are the three things you'd like to, to nail in London to make it a better a better city to be in? Well, the thing that um, you're absolutely right. The thing that we need is to understand that to make cities a little bit happier, we need to do physical exercise. And we, we actually need people to be exposed to nature, to the outdoors, to rain, to the seasons. So for me, walking and cycling are right up there. And if you create an urban landscape around walking and cycling, you're also creating a landscape around living because those two modes of transport are compatible with children walking to school. They're compatible with children cycling to school. The distances that people travel in cities are low, you know, not much more than four miles. Most people's children go to a school less than a mile from where they live. How can we even conceive that it makes sense for that to be a journey that's done in a great big square metal box that belches out stuff? And even if if it's an electric box, it takes up all that space. And if it hits somebody, it kills them because it's big square and weighs a ton. So for me, that's got to change. And it's entirely doable because we have plenty of examples in Northern Europe where cycling used to be at 6% and it's now at 26% and, and the walking has a direct uh, impact as well. And I think the governments are getting there um, and notwithstanding the fact that the air quality will be improved and all this other stuff. Um, the, the problem is you need leadership and unfortunately when you make changes, it doesn't matter whether it's in your business or whether it's in a city you can't keep everybody happy. And if you're not prepared to do things for for the long term, for the good of society, even if you upset a few people, then, you know, you're not leading. And I think that that is the key message. And obviously, we're in an interesting time at the moment because the current UK government have the opportunity because they have a majority. So they can get stuff done. It's very difficult when, when, when you're, you're not in a majority because the smallest wavering voter can pull you off stream. So it'll be very interesting to see what happens. Obviously, Boris is pro-cycling. Um, we were a bit worried before the election because the amount of money being invested in cycling looks pretty piddly and small. But I think I think that was probably more to do with getting elected than the realities. We will see. But to be perfectly honest, the challenge is so obvious and so big, it's going to happen. Whether it happens a bit quicker with this government or a bit slower with this government, it's happening. We cannot have a society where where most of us live is the most unhealthy place to live. That's bonkers. So it's going to change because we, the consumer, are not going to put up with what we've got. That's just how quickly it changes. It's really interesting to to hear you talking about the role of the role of leadership in that in in that point that you just made because I think we live in a society where it's so easy to be shot down publicly for 
trying to make in- incremental changes but being slightly imperfect or not nailing the whole issue or the whole challenge and having the the leadership that encourages people to uh, make the small changes that at a personal sustainability level add up um, has got to be one of the, the key challenges of society and leadership in a more general sense. Yeah, I mean, the thing that also gives me hope is, um, you know, but I mean, maybe I'm a bit naive and a little bit, you know, sort of think think what I want to hear in some respects, but the consumer is the most powerful voter in society. Governments are voted in every five years. And actually, we have some problems that are bigger than government. We have problems that are affecting our planet that are so serious and need to be dealt with with some level of urgency that you can't have a sort of five-year how-are-you-getting-on type of thing. It's got to be every six months, how are you getting on? The people who vote every minute is us, the humble consumer. So, it's up to us to change the world we live in. And if we decide to spend money with this company because it cares for the environment, because it looks after society, that company will flourish. And if we decide not to spend our money with this organisation that didn't give a stuff about its staff and doesn't care that it's, you know, buggering up our little blue planet, then, then that will shrivel and die. And I remember when I was at school... The first example I ever saw of the power of the humble, weak consumer was with CFCs. And it was on Newsround. And suddenly this thing called the ozone layer became the next biggest thing we needed to worry about. And I'd never heard about it. And this thing called CFC. And I thought I wanted to smell, squirt myself with links everywhere to be sexy. Um, and then I discovered that this thing had something in it that was making a hole in the ozone layer. We were all going to die. And amazingly, within... I mean, probably within two years, suddenly this thing on the bottle, it said CFC free. And we, the humble consumer, decided not to reach for that bottle. We just reached a little bit to the right for that bottle. It might have cost a few pence more, but we did it. And overnight, CFCs disappeared because we, the consumer, would determine that wasn't what we wanted. And I think above all else, the internet, the ability to communicate, the ability to to talk on a global scale about issues is going to deliver the change that we need because we, the consumer, won't have it. And I think that's that's the most exciting thing we're going to see in the next 10 to 20 years. Well, I'm still waiting for the appearance of toothpaste on the supermarket shelves without a cardboard box around it. This is another one of those things that consumers are definitely going to influence in the, in the future. The, the, the fascinating thing about, about the role of the consumer in our society at the moment is that the ability that the consumer seems to have to join up those themes of environmental impact, mental health and productivity, whether it's personal productivity or, or job productivity, in a way that, that organisations, programmes, governments just can't. How are, you, how are you planning to, to, to connect with consumers better in the future? Does that come back to the smarter bike, the, the data-driven side of Brompton, or is it, is it something else? I think you can sometimes over-techify this amazing um, you know, how-to-do-business. Of course, technology and IoT and all these other things and SEO and DDD, it's all there. But fundamentally, our strategy, right from the earliest days has been to make a decent, useful product. 
Most of the stuff we buy, we don't even bloody need. We're persuaded to buy tons of rubbish we don't even need. Then we get it, then we take it into our flat. Then the flat's full of stuff we can hardly move. And then we think, oh my God, we're going to have to clear the place out and you know, take half of it down to the charity shop because you never even used it. Well, that doesn't make sense. So the crux of it is to make something that's useful. And if you do that, and if it contributes to somebody's life... And it's not something that they're going to sell on eBay or take to the charity shop. Then it's likely they're going to tell their friends about it and they're going to communicate or they're going to tell their friends at work or they're going to post something on Twitter or Facebook. And to me, that is the most powerful thing we can do to create something that adds value to somebody's life and such that they're prepared to talk about it, that, that, that it, is, it has had sufficient positive impact on their life, that they're proud of it and they want to share that insight and that experience with their friends. The lovely thing today is that their friends might be all over the world. It doesn't just need to be somebody who's in your office or in your family. And if we can keep doing that and we can do that on an incremental uh, level of growth, you know, I'd been at Brompton 18 years and um, we had a party last week for our staff because I was given a bottle of champagne um, by some students 15 years ago um, when we were trying to learn how to, they were, uh, they, were, they were from Cranfield and they were doing a sort of lean manufacturing case study on us. And um, they gave me this magnum and I said to myself, I am not opening that until we're doing 50,000 bikes. And at the time we were doing around 10,000 bikes and last week, with all 400 of our staff, I opened that flipping bottle and it's been under my desk, about eight different desks moves for 15 years and I opened it. So we'll get there and we've got a long way to go and we've really hardly even started, but the opportunity is colossal and, and, and all of us in business have a role to play to contribute to society and that's an exciting future. Well, the champagne story certainly plays to some of the things you've said previously about the role of patience in being a good leader, a good leader as well. So, uh, I'm glad we've got a concrete example of that with within Brompton. G- given that belief that you've got in the consumer, and it's certainly something that lots of our participants in the Zebra Project share with you, what's what's the role of consumer versus owner shareholder in the good business of the future? So, I think. Um business is just a really positive thing for society. There are plenty of examples where business hasn't been a positive for society or for the planet. But I think if it's correctly uh, managed, I think business has so much to offer society to solve some of our problems, both environmental and societal problems. But I think a lot of that comes round to trying to understand what the business is about. Now, our purpose, Brompton's mission, is to change how people live in cities. Our mission is not to create more money for our shareholders. That is not our mission. It's nowhere near our mission. It's not in our vision. It's nowhere. But I wouldn't be here doing what I'm doing with Brompton unless in 2008 I persuaded some old mates from university and some of my family and the bank to to lend me money to, to put into this business. We wouldn't be here. So shareholders have a really important role to play. They're an important part. But so are customers. So are staff. And to my mind, 
it's really easy in business. You've got to have the customer at the heart of your business. Absolutely. And, and, it's, and there are all these debates. It, I don't even know how you can have a debate. The customer has to be at the heart of it. If the customer's at the heart of it and you want to make your customer happy, the best way you can, you can't do that if your staff hate their job. If your staff are not well, not loving what they're doing, well, the customer's going to know either in the product or the service, that if the customers hate what they're, if your staff hate what they're doing, the customer's going to know. So you can't really have delighted customers, customers if your staff can't bear what they're doing. So if you're going to deliver a fantastic experience to your customer, you've got to care for your staff because otherwise one follows the other. And if you're doing, if your customer's happy and your staff care, guess what? You're going you're to make a profit because you need that profit to invest in your staff and innovate and all that. And guess what? The shareholders will benefit, but they all come after the customer. Everything follows that. But to put it arse about face is short-termist. It's not in the interest of the customer. It's not in the interest of the staff. It's this weird world we've got ourselves into where, I mean, it's, it's why do we even say where the FTSE is every day? I mean, it's irrelevant. What we want to be doing is where we are in three years' time, in four years' time. This obsession with, oh, oh God, our share price has gone down by 10%. Oh, we've got to do something about it. You know, knee-jerk reaction. You know, guff, that's not how business works. You've got to be in the, the long term. You've got to protect your risks and you'll mitigate your risks in the short term. But really, the whole business is about where are we in three to five years time. And I think that that idea of, uh, of alignment between those different interests will be really appealing to our listeners. And, and it's one of those things that's difficult to achieve and that they will be struggling with. Is, is there one practical piece of advice that you might give people about how to create that alignment? absolute flipping honesty you know we, we, we have this thing at Brompton where and I and I talk about it regularly because I just love it and uh, there's a story about the emperor and his invisible clothes this is the amazing emperor who found these two tailors flipping amazing these tailors and their material was so fine you could hardly see it it was the finest material spent ages cost gazillions they made this amazing clothes and everyone loved them he went to show the whole town and he's marching around and everyone's saying how wonderful they are and you could only see the fine clothes if you were clever and everything else. And this little boy pipes up and says, oh, but I can see his willy. This is willy. And everyone's going, oh, do you know what? <laughs> I didn't want to say it, but funny, I can see his willy. <laughs> and to me, I say at Brompton, you know, if anybody sees a willy, I want you to call it out because that's when things get into trouble. People are not honest. They don't say what they see. They start falling into the bureaucratic business guff. And, you know, we're just human beings. We're here for a short period of time trying to do our bit. You're trying to look after the family, contra a little bit to, bit to society and, and, and then snuff out. And, you know, honesty so much easier. You don't have to remember the bullshit. You can just carry on and, and be humble and, and, and face the fact that we, none of us are perfect and we're all trying our best and we're a motley crew having a crack at it. And actually, customers respect that. They respect that, that we're not perfect. And we've had a world of perfection foisted upon us. Our dear politicians are expected to be perfect. Well, they're not. You know, None of us are perfect. And the sooner, if the leader of an organisation is imperfect, which I am, I mean riddled, it allows the rest of the organization to be imperfect. 
if the leader of the organization creates an aura of perfection, everyone else has to be perfect. And then you hide the failures. No one says the truth. And that is very dangerous for business. Gold dust advice. Thanks for that. So before we rush off to call out the willies that we see in our organizations, I've got a final question for you. You, you rightly said that actually what really matters is what we're going to be doing in three or four years' time. And one of the things that our listeners are, are keen to understand is what should be on their board agendas for the next three to five years. You're thinking about your own business. What, what do you think will be on the agenda that isn't now? Funnily enough, um, we have three priorities, which are our sort of immediate delivering in-your-face priorities. And we also have three long-term priorities, which are making sure that we don't get so caught up in the day-to-day that we don't give priority to some work that needs to happen to deliver that three to five-year project. Um, And I think for us, digital, which is a very, very generic word, but that includes intelligent bikes, it includes how we take data to, to help and inform and support our customer. We're, a lot of what we're doing, we're sort of guessing, we're half blind. And, and iron, ironically, the, the knowledge, is the insight's there, we just haven't linked it up. And to link it up is when it becomes useful and, and contributes to the experience of our customer. And the other one is, um, we are, by our very nature, sort of looked upon as being a sustainable business because of what we produce. But actually, you know, we've been so busy just keeping the business on the straight and narrow, trying to grow it, you know, managing all these things. We haven't had a chance to really think about sustainability. And so that's an area that we are just beginning to create a department whose job it is to really understand that because everyone cares about it in our business, but they're all too busy to really do it. I mean, we must, in a year, we must get through about, if you think of every little part that's delivered to our company and part that we, about 5 million um, plastic bags of some description, just that's just one teeny weeny area. And we all know we could do better and we've done things and we, we use all of our electricity is, is, is renewable and we, we try and we gave up using the blow up bobbly stuff and we now use the squidgy paper stuff. But have we, do we really know what we're doing? No. And if we recruited somebody who's that's their job and all they've done is that, then we could do so much better. So I think, you know, and, and there is, there's so much opportunity there. And I think actually we could be more efficient. Um, but again, we're so busy rushing around, we haven't had a chance. So I think sort of making sure that we are being clever and innovating in how we are sustainable and the complete life cycle of our bike, and also working out how we can use technology to deliver a better experience for our customers for the entire journey that they have with our bike probably on the agenda. Brilliant. There's a bucket load of inspiration in that conversation, so I'm grateful for the uh, the brutal honesty and the insight that you've been able to give us, and uh, no doubt that our listeners will have a lot to think about uh, on the back of your comments. So thank you so much for, uh, for coming in today, and a uh, great conversation. Many thanks indeed. <laughs>